I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, and I'll begin by reading our passage for us, beginning in verse 14. Philippians 2 and verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. One pastor tells a story of a little old lady who walked into a department store. When she entered the store, a a band began to play some loud music. An executive of the store came up and pinned an orchid on her dress and handed her a crisp $100 bill. The lady was surprised to find out that she was the one millionth customer to enter the store. TV cameras were there and reporters ran up and began to interview her. And one reporter shouted, tell me, just what did you come here for today? This lady paused for a moment and then sheepishly answered, I was on my way to the complaint department. How many of us would want to announce that to the world? (laughs) And yet, this is something that every single one of us is tempted to do, to grumble and complain. In fact, complaining and grumbling is in the very fabric of our fallen human nature. In fact, it all started all the way back in the beginning with the very first man. After eating the fruit that God told Adam not to eat, God asked Adam, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? To which Adam answered God and said, yes, God, it's all my fault. I wasn't caring for or protecting my wife and I ate the fruit that she gave me. Obviously, Adam didn't say that, right? (laughs) That was not his response. What did Adam do? He grumbled and he passed the blame onto God and he told God, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. While both Adam and this little old lady's grumblings have been made public, oftentimes the grumblings that we do is not public but it happens in the whispers under our own breath. Now, I'm not here this morning to tell you that I've mastered this. This is something that every single one of us is tempted to do. If we were to search our own hearts, we would all understand and know that we are tempted at times to grumble and complain. Every one of us is. In fact, the question is not, will you be tempted to grumble and complain? 
That's not the question because every one of us is going to be tempted at some point to grumble and complain. But the question that we must ask ourselves here this morning is, how am I going to respond when I am tempted to grumble and complain? How am I going to respond? Well, Paul tells us here in our, pas- in our passage how we are to respond. But he doesn't just leave us with a command and tell us, do not grumble. He gives us reasons why we should not grumble. We're going to see that here in verses 14 through 16. And so as we look at these three verses here before us this morning, we're going to break it down into two simple points. Two simple points. Point number one, we'll call the prohibition. The prohibition. And point number two, the purpose. The prohibition and the purpose. Now as we look at these verses that are here before us, we must remember the context in which Paul is writing. We always want to understand what the context is as we open up the scriptures and we begin to read them. And if you remember back in chapter 1 and verse 27, the main theme that Paul has been talking about in these verses is the theme of unity. Unity. That's the main context here. He tells us stand firm in one spirit. With one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. He tells us to be of the same mind. Maintain the same love. Be united in spirit. Be intent on one purpose. It's all about unity. Paul is calling for unity in the church. But how is that done? How how is unity achieved? Well, it happens when we humble ourselves and consider others as more important than ourselves, right? It's exactly what we saw earlier on in chapter 2. It happens when we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, which is exactly what Paul commands us to do in verse 12. We are to be those who are working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We don't work for our salvation, but we work out the salvation that we have been given by God. And as we work out our salvation in obedience to God's word, the outcome then will be unity in the church. Well, that's what Paul is calling for here. But Paul now gives some practical application to what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And we find this beginning in verse 14. And so we're going to look at our first point here, our first point, what we call the prohibition. The prohibition, beginning in verse 14. Notice what Paul says there in verse 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now notice first of all that Paul gives an all-inclusive command here. It's all-inclusive. The verb in the sentence is the word do, poieo in the Greek, which means to do or to make. This here, this verb, is a, it's a present tense imperative. Present tense command, meaning that this is something that is to be continual or habitual in our lives. It's a continual action that you and I are to be doing. We're to be doing something. What's interesting is that this verb is also a plural verb, which means that Paul is speaking to every single believer in the church. 
He's not here singling some people out while allowing others to grumble and complain, but this is for everyone in the church. It's a command that's given across the board to all those who are in the church at Philippi. But notice what comes right after the verb or the action, do. Paul then says, all things. All things. This command here is all-inclusive. It means all the time. At every moment of every day, you are not to grumble. All things. Whatever it is that you are doing, all things you are to do without grumbling. This means that this is the whole of the Christian life, the entirety of the Christian life. It doesn't mean that you have two separate lives, one that's a Christian part of my life and another that's my life in which I get to do whatever I want to do, fulfill my own desires. No, all things here encompasses the entirety of our life, that we as believers are Christians 24-7. And the entirety of our life should be Christian. We are those who belong to Christ and therefore are those who are to act and speak like Christ all the time in all things. Which means that we live all of our lives and do all things for the glory of God. Which is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All things, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And there in 1 Corinthians 10, that command there is a command in the positive. Here is something that you are to do. You must do this. It's a command in the positive. But Paul doesn't give us a positive command in in Philippians 2.14. This is a command from the negative. What he's saying here is, don't do this. Right? Right? Do all to the glory of God. Do that. But in our passage here, this is a prohibition. Don't do this. And he gives it as a negative command by using the word, notice that word there, without. Without. And I want to highlight that word there because this word is going to illustrate for us our relationship to the world. This illustrates our relationship to the world. We're going to see more of that in the next verse. But this word without here means the absence or lack of something. Or being apart from. We're set apart from doing this. It calls for absence or lack of something. But it has the picture here of being totally separate from something. That is, our lives are to be totally separate from from grumbling and complaining. It calls for living life without making the use of something, without expressing or practicing something. That is that you and I are never to be practicing grumbling. Never. We're to do without. Notice, In fact, there are two things that Paul specifically commands us to live our lives without. Two things, first, grumbling, and second, disputing. Grumbling and disputing. Let's look at these here for a moment. Grumbling 
as we looked at last week, is the word that's used in the Septuagint to describe the murmuring of Israel. It's murmuring. As they wandered in the wilderness, what were the Israelites doing? They just continued to murmur, 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 and complain and complain and complain. The word is used in John 7, 12, describing what the people of Israel did concerning Jesus. In John 7, 12, it says, There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him, Jesus. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Lots of grumbling that was going on amongst the Jews concerning Jesus. This is the word that's used in Acts 6.1 about what the Hellenistic Jews did. In Acts 6.1 it says this, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint or grumbling arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Grumbling and complaining. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4.9, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Without grumbling. That is, as believers, we are to show hospitality to each other and never grumble about it. What this word here, grumbling, describes is it's a whispering. It's a whispering or a a kind of half-voiced, under-the-breath murmuring that sows seeds of discontentment in a field wider than one's own heart. The whispers that you hear amongst people. The murmuring that's going on. And it begins in one's own heart. That's where grumbling begins. It begins in the heart, but then this grumbling goes out of the heart and it sows seeds of discontentment among other people as well. It spreads, and it spreads rapidly. And it usually happens in the undertones or in the whispers of the people. But the idea here, as one commentator says, seems to be murmuring against the dictates of God's will. As we saw last week, as the Israelites were grumbling and complaining against Moses, who were they ultimately grumbling and complaining against? Against God. When we grumble and complain, it's not ultimately against another person. It's ultimately against God. It's being discontent with God's will in our life when we grumble and complain. And it begins in the heart, and then it begins to spread among other people. But Paul says here that we need to live our lives without this happening. This should be something that is not named amongst the people of God. Which means that when it begins in the heart, in our own heart, because we will all be tempted to grumble and complain at some point, right? We still live in the flesh. And when that happens, when it begins in our own heart, we need to go to God and confess that before God and repent of that so that we do not let it out of our heart, and grumble and complain against others. And so, Paul gives us this prohibition. First one, that we are not to grumble. But then there's a second word there. Notice that, disputing. 
disputing. This here is the outflow of the grumbling or the murmuring that's taken place. This word disputing is a compound word in the Greek, dia, which means through, and logis, logismos, which means thought. And so it is a thinking that happens and that is happening back and forth as an internal deliberation. It's happening back and forth as this internal deliberation, this disputing that's going on. And this word then came to mean questioning or doubting or disputing the truth. Disputing the truth. Some even see this word as referring to evil thinking. Evil thinking that's going on in the mind of someone. One commentator says it implies a questioning mind and suggests an arrogant attitude by those who, who assume they're always right. Questioning mind with an arrogant attitude. And it, while it flows from a grumbling heart, this disputing is something that is intellectual. And it's going on in the mind. It's somebody who's continually contemplating in their own mind why they are right. It begins in the heart as their heart is grumbling, but then it goes to the mind as they continually think about this and dispute in their own minds why they are right. MacArthur says it this way, whereas grumbling is essentially emotional, disputing is essentially intellectual. A person who continues to murmur and grumble against God will eventually argue and dispute with him. And so it begins with an emotion in the heart of the person, an emotional grumbling, but then it turns into an intellectual dispute where this is now a verbal exchange that happens between two people. Disputing. One commentator describes this word disputing as intellectual rebellion against God. Intellectual rebellion against God. And that's exactly what Joshua and Caleb said to the people, right? You have rebelled against God. Your grumbling and your complaining is rebellion against God. It's not that you're just simply angry with Moses for leading you out into the wilderness. No, ultimately, you're rebelling against God. They began murmuring in the camp among themselves. Pretty soon they brought it forth to Moses. It came out of the heart, and now it becomes a public dispute. In fact, we saw that even with Miriam and Aaron, right? Remember what they did? Miriam and Aaron? How they go against Moses? And what Paul is telling us here is that this is something that every single believer is to do without. We're to be separated from grumbling and disputing. This is something that should not characterize or even be named among God's children. And what Paul does here is he prohibits us from even going down this alley. And as we continue to grow in our sanctification and work out our salvation with fear and trembling, grumbling and disputing should be something that we are continually doing without as believers. Yesterday morning when I woke up, 
all I could think about was this message. You do that often. You study it all week, and then (laughs) you wake up, and that's all you can think about. And I began to pray, and as I was praying, I prayed this, Lord, help me to be humble and never grumble. And I thought, why have I never prayed that before? I mean, it rhymes. It fits. It's how I should be praying every single day. Lord, help me to be humble and never grumble. Paul gives that prohibition here and tells us we are never, ever to be those who are grumbling or disputing. Let's look at our second point, point number two, the purpose. The purpose. Paul doesn't just give us a command, but he also gives us a reason why. A reason why we should do this. Notice these two words at the beginning of verse 15. He says, so that. So that. That's that's a phrase there that whenever you see that in your Bible, you should underline that. Highlight that. Circle that. That's a purpose clause. It's a reason why you should be doing what God commands you to be doing. He says, so that. And in this purpose clause that he gives here, there are three reasons why we must live without grumbling and disputing. Three reasons that Paul gives us here. The first reason is so that we might have a Christian testimony. So that we might have a Christian testimony. Look again at verse 15. He says, So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Paul here says that the goal for us as believers in our sanctification is that we would become blameless and innocent. Blameless and innocent. Now, the the NASB doesn't have the greatest translation here for prove yourselves to be. In the NASB it says that, prove yourselves to be. Some of your translations might say become, so that you might become blameless and innocent. And Paul is not here saying prove yourselves to be as if he's saying that they are already blameless and innocent and they need to go out now and prove that to the world. That's not the idea of what Paul is saying here. But Paul is saying that the goal for all those who are children of God is for us to become blameless and innocent. To become blameless and innocent. Remember, this is progressive sanctification that we've been talking about here, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out what God is working in. It's progressive sanctification. We forsake grumbling and disputing. And as we do that, we are growing in our sanctification. That's the Christian life. That's what we are to continually be doing in our lives. And the goal then is that we be blameless and innocent children of God. Now, let me just clarify quickly that this is not an excuse then for us to grumble and dispute. To say, well, I haven't become blameless and innocent. I'm still working on that, Lord. It's still something in my life. Therefore, I get a pass while I'm grumbling. Right, God? No, we can't say that to God. This is something that every single one of us is held accountable for. 
we're held accountable as we strive to live blameless and innocent lives now in the present. Now notice these two words, blameless and innocent. Blameless here means to be free from fault or defect or blemish. You might think, well, Ace, I'm fallen man, fallen woman. And I'm called to be blameless without fault or defect or blemish? I can never reach that. In fact, it's, it's impossible for any person to reach that. Well, there's actually somebody in Scripture who is called blameless. In fact, two people. Luke describes Zechariah and Elizabeth both as those who were walking blamelessly in the commandments and requirements of the Lord. They were walking blamelessly. Zechariah and Elizabeth. This doesn't mean sinless perfection. It doesn't mean that they were perfect, a perfect couple, as we know that none of us can reach perfection this side of heaven. But they were living in such a way that they're without the possibility of a right charge being brought against them. That is, they were living a blameless life so that nobody could bring a charge against them to say that they weren't living their lives according to the commandments and requirements of the Lord. They were striving to live blameless lives. And that's what we're called to do as well. Then we see this word, innocent. Akarios is the Greek word. A meaning without. And keranumai meaning mixture or to mingle. And so it means without mixture or unmixed or unadulterated. We are to live blameless and innocent lives. Those who are without mixture. Another way that we can say this is that God wants us to be pure. He wants us to live pure lives. This word was used to describe a a pure wine without the mixture of water. A wine that was very, very pure. It was innocent. Ah, karyos. It was also used to describe a, a pure metal. A metal that was strong without any impurities in it. What are those impurities in our life that you and I are to live without? It's sin, right? That's what we're called to live without. We're not to have a mixture of sin in our lives, but we're to be continually repenting of sin, confessing sin before the Lord, and living blameless and innocent or pure lives. Now notice how Paul then describes the Philippian believers there and describes us as well. Notice he says that they are children of God. They're children of God. That is, we have become children of God when we put our faith in Christ. At the moment that we repented of our sin and put our faith in Jesus Christ is the moment that we became a child of God. And for those who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ, they are not children of God, but they're children of who? Of the devil. They're children of the devil. You're either a child of the devil or you're a child of God. 
And the only way that you can be a child of God is by repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And then, as, as His children, as children of God, we are to be imitators of God. And we are then to be those who are reflecting God to this world. He's our Father. We're His children. We've been bought by Him with a price, the blood of His Son, who was the ultimate sacrifice for our sins on that cross. He made the payment to save us. He is the one who bought us. And now He is our Father and we are His children. And therefore, as His children, notice what Paul says there, we are to be above reproach. Verse 15, he says that we are to be above reproach. This word here, above reproach, is very similar to the word blameless that we just saw above. But this word was used to describe the absence of a defect in an animal that was going to be sacrificed. As God called for an unblemished animal to be sacrificed. He's saying one that is above reproach. One that is absent of any defect. And that's a picture of our lives. We are to be those who are living without defect. It's the word that describes Christ in Hebrews 9.14. Where the author of Hebrews says this, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offer Himself without blemish to God? Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God. So this word here above reproach means to be without blemish, imperfections, or defects. In fact, Paul says that God saved us for this very reason. Reason In Ephesians 1.4, he says this, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. You see, God saved us so that we would live lives above reproach, blameless before Him. That's what we're called to do and how we are to live. We're to, called to live blameless lives, to be above reproach. But Christian, we must understand that in our own power, this is impossible. This is impossible for us to do in our own power. You see, in Christ... Our position is that we are blameless and without defect, right? That's our position in Christ. As we have believed in Christ, we are now blameless and without defect. But we are to show that as a testimony to the world. We're to live that out so that the world might see what God has done in us. That's what we're called to do. We're to be a testimony, a testimony to the world through our actions as we live blameless, innocent, and above reproach before a watching world. One of the ways that we strive for this in our practice as believers is through our lack of grumbling and disputing. That's one of the ways that we can show the world that we've been saved by God. And why? Why do we need to do this? Because we live, notice what Paul says there 
in the midst of a, of a crooked and perverse generation. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now, just look around us, and you can see this, right? <laughs> just as Paul was living his day in, a, in, in, a, uh, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, so are we today. We're living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. It's interesting, this word crooked here describes that which, was, which has deviated from what is straight. It's the Greek word scolios, from which we get scoliosis from. It means to be bent or curved or twisted. And it often refers to something that is deviated from the standard or from the norm. And oftentimes in Scripture, it refers to those who are morally or spiritually corrupt. They're crooked. Someone who is crooked is someone who is morally and spiritually corrupt. And Paul is saying here, that's the generation, that's the world around us that we live in. It's a crooked generation. We live amongst those who are not only crooked, but also, notice what he says, they're perverse this word is the same basic idea as crooked, but has more of an active way of describing someone who is crooked. This is someone who is corrupt or distorted. We can think of false teachers in this way. As Paul identifies them in Acts 20 and verse 30, he says this, And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. He's describing false teachers here. Jesus even spoke about the generation that was alive during his time. In Matthew 17, 17, he says, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? They were a crooked and perverse generation. And what did they do to the Messiah? Put him on a cross. They wanted to get rid of him. Now what's interesting is that last week we saw the example of Israel in the wilderness. But later on in the, in the Pentateuch, Moses describes these Israelites who grumbled and complained about God and against him. And he describes them in Deuteronomy chapter 32. In fact, turn over with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Hold your finger in Philippians 2 because we'll come back to it. But in Deuteronomy chapter 32, this is a reiteration of the law that Moses gives in Deuteronomy. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is for. Reiterating the law to the generation, the the, the generation of Israelites who are going to go and enter into the promised land. But notice what he says in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 5. He says this, They have acted corruptly toward him, that is God. They are not his children because of their defect, but a perverse and crooked generation. Sound familiar? Guess who Paul had in mind when he gave the prohibition not to grumble and dispute over in Philippians chapter 2? He had the generation of the Israelites who wandered in the wilderness. They are those who are perverse and crooked. 
as they grumbled and complained against Moses and against God. But notice what Moses says of them. Right there in the middle of this verse, he says, they are not his children. These Israelites, whom God brought out of Egypt, whom he rescued from the Egyptians, from slavery in Egypt, he says, look, they are not his children. Those ones who are grumbling and complaining against God, they are not his children. But what does Paul tell the Philippian believers? You are his children. You are his children. So don't act like Israel. Don't act like those people. They're not his children. Israel was to live as a testimony to the world of the greatness of God, but they failed to do that because they failed to trust God and live in obedience to him. And Moses tells us here, they're not his children. But as we live in this world that is crooked and perverse, we are to be a walking testimony to the world of the greatness of our God. That's how we're to live our lives. And we do this when we're living our lives without grumbling and disputing. Now turn back to Philippians 2. Let me give you a second reason why we must live our lives without grumbling and disputing, not only so that we can have a Christian testimony, but secondly, so that we might be a Christian witness. So that we might be a Christian witness. Now, how is a Christian testimony and a Christian witness different? Well, a Christian testimony is allowing the world to see the greatness of God in our lives. It has to do with our character as we live out the commands of God in our lives. That they can see the work that God has done in our lives by just examining with their eyes how we live. But a Christian witness is allowing the world to hear about the greatness of God. It has to do with what we say, how we use our words. In fact, look at the end of verse 15 and the beginning of verse 16. Notice what Paul says there. Among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Now, oftentimes we look at this phrase, lights in the world, and we think about our character, right? Or our actions and how we are to live our lives out before a watching world. We read this earlier in our scripture reading in Matthew 5 where Jesus says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so there is an aspect of living as lights in the world in which we are living so that the world might see what we are doing. However, turn over in your Bibles to Acts 13. Acts chapter 13. This is Paul and Barnabas preaching in Pisidian Antioch. And as was the custom for Paul, the first place that he went to when he arrived in a city was where? To the synagogue. He goes to a Jewish synagogue. And he goes to the Jewish synagogue and he begins to preach the gospel to the Jews. And notice what he says in Acts chapter 13 and verse 44. He says this. It says this. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. 
But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that, notice this, the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Look at verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. Notice in your Bible there, in in some of your Bibles, it's in all caps. Verse 47 there. Why is it in all caps? It's quoting the Old Testament. What is Paul doing here? He is quoting the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 49 and verse 6. Notice verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And verse 49, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. Notice what this is talking about here. What is the context of this? I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles. And what are Paul and Barnabas doing? Are they just living their lives before the Gentiles so that the people might see them as Christians? No. What are they doing? Preaching the gospel. They're using their words. The Gentiles heard this. And they began glorifying the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord began to spread among the whole region. Paul and Barnabas go in and they begin as lights to the Gentiles to preach the gospel to them. And so being a light unto the world is not just living our lives in accordance with God's commands as an outward display to the world, but it's also using our words to preach to the world, to tell them of the goodness of our God, to preach to them the gospel that they need to hear. You see, living as lights in this world is not just having Christian character. That's oftentimes how we think of it. But it's not just having Christian character. It's also preaching the Christian message. That's what we're commanded to do. Now turn back to Philippians chapter 2. And look at verse 16. Notice what Paul says there. That as they are appearing or shining as lights in this world. In verse 16, he says, holding fast the word of life. Holding fast the word of life. Now what's interesting here is that the translators have translated the Greek word epikontes as holding fast, which means to grasp something or to hold it tight. However, this word can also mean to hold forth or to hold out which is how the King James has actually translated it. To hold out or to hold forth the word of life. And that would mean holding out or holding forth the word of life is what we are called to do, is what Paul is commanding the Philippians to do. Not just to grasp it and hold it tight and say, we're going to hold on to these doctrines 
and we're not going to let them go. But he's saying, hold it forth. Hold it out. Give it away. Give it to people. Give them the words of life. The context here would tell us that Paul is just is not just telling us that we need to hold tightly onto them, onto these words of life, but as we shine as lights in this world, we are to proclaim the gospel to the world. That is what you and I are called to do. One commentator says it this way. I love how he says this. He says, perhaps it is possible to say that we only hold fast the gospel by holding forth the gospel. But it is very Uh, Its very nature, by its very nature, the gospel is lost by failing to share it, right? By its very nature, if we don't go and share the gospel with others, the gospel will be lost. But he says this, it is kept only by giving it away. That's how we hold fast the gospel. That's how we keep the gospel. We not only believe it ourselves, but we give it away to others so that they might believe the gospel and so that they might hold on to it and give it away. And it spreads and it spreads and it spreads. That's the great commission to go and make disciples. Teach them all that Christ has commanded us. And so, as those who are not grumbling or disputing, but shining as lights in this dark world, we're called to be witnesses of Christ by telling others about Him. And we do that when we proclaim the gospel, or what Paul calls here the word of life. It's the word of life. It's the gospel message that brings life to dead sinners. It's the gospel message that calls out to sinners to repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. And when a dead sinner repents and places their faith in Christ, they are made alive. As Ephesians 2.4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our our transgressions made us alive together with Christ as witnesses of Christ it's the message that we are to preach to the world many of us are going to have ample opportunities this Christmas season right to preach the gospel to those that are lost that need to hear the gospel we're called not just to live it out before them but also to share it with them what we've been commanded to do finally there's a third reason for why we must live our lives without grumbling not only to have a christian testimony and to be a christian witness but third so that you might bring joy to christian leaders so that you might bring joy to christian leaders look at the end of verse 16 he says so that in the day of christ i will have reason to glory because i did not run in vain nor toil in vain Paul's desire for the church at Philippi is that they would not grumble and complain so that in the day of Christ, he would have reason to glory. Now, what does he mean by the day of Christ here? Well, this is the day when all of us as believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and be rewarded. 
This is the judgment seat of Christ where we will be rewarded. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So rewards. It's a time of rewards that we look forward to. And what Paul is talking about here is that at that day, he wants to look back and rejoice in the faithfulness of the Philippian believers whom he brought the gospel to. Notice he says, I will have reason to glory. I'll have reason to glory. Now, this doesn't mean that he's seeking for his own glory. He understands and knows that it's sin to seek your own glory. It's sin and it's selfish to seek for your own glory. He understands that. Paul knows that. And so he's not saying here that he's seeking for his own glory. But another way that this could be translated, that this word glory could be translated, is with the word rejoice. Rejoice. In fact, the King James translates it this way, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. Paul knows that he has nothing to boast in in and of himself. Nothing. And yet, church, He's the greatest Christian to ever walk the face of this earth. The Apostle Paul, and he says, he he knows, I can't boast in myself. It's only the work of God in me. But he does have reason to rejoice. He has reason to rejoice. In fact, over in chapter 4 and verse 1, he calls the Philippian believers his joy and crown. They're his joy and his crown. As Paul is in prison writing this, he knows the labor and the hardship of ministry and all the hardships that he has gone through to preach the gospel so that these Philippian believers would be saved. And he knows of the great joy that comes when he sees fruit that is produced from his labors. And this is every true pastor's desire. To see fruit produced in the lives of God's children. It's what every true pastor strives for. Why every pastor works hard and labors. So that he can see the fruit of God in the lives of his children. And it brings him great joy. That was Paul's desire. He wanted to see sanctification in the lives of the Philippian believers. And then Paul says, as he sees the fruit that's produced in their lives, that he did not run in vain nor toil in vain. You see, it's not just the saving work that God does in people that brings great joy. But it's also the sanctifying work that God does in his people. That brings great joy. MacArthur says it this way. The best thing believers can do for their pastors. Is to faithfully live out the truths of God's word. That he has preached and taught. So that he can say with Paul. I did not run in vain. Nor toil in vain. And I can tell you church. I am not running in vain. Nor toiling in vain. Because I continually see week after week. The work that God is doing in your hearts. And it brings great joy. 
closing. A businessman went on a trip to France and he wanted to bring back some souvenirs for his wife. One of the souvenirs he brought back was a a matchbox that would glow in the dark. He gave it to his wife and he turned out the lights and it was completely dark. There was no glow from the matchbox. His wife chuckled. This must be a joke. The husband was disappointed, thinking that he had been cheated. The next day, the man's wife noticed some words on the box in French. She had a friend who knew French, so she took the box over to her friend's house. Her friend translated the instructions on the box that said this, If you want me to shine at night, keep me in the sunlight all day. Later later that night, when her husband came home, she turned out the light and the matchbox gave off a magnificent glow. Her husband, being surprised, asked, What did you do? She said, I figured out the secret. Before it can shine in the dark, it must be exposed to the light. You see, church, how do we overcome temptation, the temptation of grumbling and disputing and shine as lights in this dark world? We must spend time with Jesus who is the light of the world. And the more time that we spend with him as we get into his word and study his word and come to know his heart, the greater light that we will have as we shine out in this dark world. May we be those who obey the commands of God as we spend time in his word, loving him more, and being a light in this dark world. Let's pray. Father, we know that every one of us will be tempted to grumble and complain at some point in our lives. Father, help us to not give in to the temptation but to be those who would shine as lights in this dark world, this crooked and perverse generation. Father, this is a dark world that we live in. And we know that the only hope for this world is Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us to shine brightly, that people might see Christ in us as we live our lives in obedience to your word. But Father, that we wouldn't just live our lives, but that we would also use our mouths and preach the gospel, the words of eternal life that save those who are a part of this dark world, who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Father, help us this Christmas season as we will have opportunities to live as light, to preach this gospel to the world. Help us not to grumble or dispute, 
but to be those who would bring glory and honor to your name as we live as salt and light in this world for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.